This morning we are on the topic, a son meets with his father in the morning. We could also say a daughter meets with her father in the morning. And you could even say sons together and daughters together meet with the father in the morning because what is being said applies not only to individual prayer but also to corporate prayer. When we come to this topic of communion with the Father and that communion with the Father beginning in the morning, all kinds of questions pop into the mind. One of the first is the, an objection. Maybe he's going to say that everybody needs to get up at six o'clock every morning and pray for an hour or two hours. Well, I would think it wouldn't hurt your little soul a bit. <laughs> All of you lazy bodies. <laughs> but that's not the point of the lecture. Uh, the point of the lecture is not how much time the Lord wants you to take in the morning or even whether your morning happens to be in, in the literal morning or if you work on a swing shift, whether it might not be in the afternoon or something. So that isn't the issue. Uh, the real issue is getting into fellowship with your Father through prayer, through reading the Word, through opening up your life to Him, being willing to will His will for that day. The real reason people don't get up in the morning is that the whole idea to them is rather pointless. If prayer is the intercom in which you are calling up reception for more pillows for your room or if it is as John Piper says it's actually a walkie talkie in the battlefield then if it's the latter you're going to want to get up and fight if it's not then why bother you'd be better off and healthier staying in bed and not wasting your energy uh, getting out of the sack when you have needed rest again so let's turn again to the Word of God, and we're going to read some passages from Galatians that feed into this topic, and also one passage from 2 Thessalonians. Galatians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love in the morning. <laughs> and you could add in the noonday and in the night too. The only thing that counts is faith working powerfully through love. And then we drop down to verses 13 and 15. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. 
And then verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. And then turning over to Second Thessalonians, we find there in chapter 3, verse 1, a striking verse. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored or triumphant just as it was with you. And more Literally, finally, brothers, keep praying for us that the message of the Lord may keep running rapidly and keep being glorified just as it was with you. That's what we're to pray for, that we have two weapons which the Spirit gives us. One is the gospel and the other is prayer by which that gospel is empowered. There isn't anything else. And once you realize that, your prayer at any time becomes a totally different thing. You're either armed or you're disarmed. You're either being effective because you pray or you're being ineffective because you don't pray. That's simple. But... The other thing we need to see is how rich this is and how wonderful it is to be a soldier. A soldier's son or a soldier daughter. And as we begin to think about it, that brings us right back again to the issue of how does this faith work powerfully through love? And you may say, well, when I look into my experience, that really isn't happening in my life. And every one of us must say, yes, that's my experience again and again. But if you look to your experience rather than the promise of the gospel, it will continue to be that way. That faith does not look at appearances, but it hooks itself into the promise of God. And why then can faith be described in Galatians 2, verse 16, as purely receptive? It's like running to the mother hen and getting the wings over you. It's like the earth lying there passively drinking in the rain from heaven. It's the bride simply saying, I do, I surrender. But if it's that, how come... Paul, at this point, suddenly comes out with faith being described in power language. The power to do what we can't do. One of the virtues 
of the commentary by Hans-Dieter Betz is that he sees this as the major problem that the commentators have not wrestled with in Galatians with a solution. That is, some of them have wrestled with it a bit. Why is it that faith is described earlier as accepting, receiving, and resting on Christ, and here it is described as a kind of a warfare faith? It's on the march. What's the difference? Well, Betts rightly says the difference is the love of God is intervened in between. And the appropriation of Christ and his love has made the difference. The gospel. Now, I don't commend Betts' commentary with any qualification. I think the best commentary in modern times on Galatians is probably the one recently done by Fung. But nonetheless, he has seen the structure of the book. And the structure of the book is centered around the power of the atonement. And I want to call to your attention something it seems to me that is even more searching. If you go back to chapter 4 in Galatians, you'll notice there in verse 4, it says, God sent his Son. And then in verse... Six, he says, God sent the Spirit of His Son. Two historical actions. On the one hand, God sent His Son into history. He was born of a woman, real humanity, born under the law, real humanity, coming under the curse and fulfilling the requirements of obedience. And, but then the second action is that God sent the Spirit of His Son into the hearts of His people. Both are historical actions. Both happened in history. Both are factual. And we often think that the coming of Christ the Son in the Incarnation is historical and factual, but it's also historical and factual that the Spirit came. Now notice the way he describes it. He could have said, God uh, sent Christ. He could have said, God gave Jesus. He could have used any other no words, but here you'll notice he says God sent his Son. If you go back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, you'll find he uses that language again, Son of God. Here he says this, I have been co-crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You turn back to chapter 1, verse 16. This God was pleased by his grace to reveal in him his Son. Now, who is this incarnate sufferer? Who is this one who makes the atonement, who takes the curse upon himself? Mystery of mysteries, he is omnipotence in the flesh. 
And so Paul, in his argumentation with those who are wanting to add the law to Jesus and the works of the law as the basis of acceptance with God, as the basis for being a first-class Christian, Paul is saying you've already got a super-class salvation. And it's because it has been bought for you by the one whose name is Omnipotence. And therefore, the one who is described for us in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7, is the mighty one. A giant Christ, I think John Owen once said, leads to giant Christians. If you have a giant Christ, you'll have a giant salvation. I can remember going into a pub when I first went to Ireland. For those of you who are teetotalers, rest assured, I just went in to look. <laughs> and as I sat there and looked at these men, they were sitting around, and I saw nothing but tiredness, darkness, and discouragement on those faces. And my heart cried out, Oh, if you just knew the reality of the one who is the crucified Son of God. If you knew his power, if you but knew it. And you see, that's what we're talking about then when we're talking about faith working by love. It works mightily by love because it's hooked in to an to a Savior, a Redeemer, to a salvation which is irresistible, which is sovereign. And it's not just written in a book that grace is irresistible. It is written in the eternities that God has done this. It's not something you just take out of a theology book, but it's something that is the most real thing about existence. Did you ever think why God made such a big universe? You know, it's vast. And I can't understand Stephen Hawking. I'm not sure Stephen Hawking understands Stephen Hawking. But as vast as the universe may be, it's barely big enough to cope with the majesty of the cross. And God made it as a little bit of a stage for the glory of Christ in the cross. And that's why he made it so big. The cross looks so tiny physically, but it's not. It dominates all of existence. So when we think about getting up in the morning, we come then to say, yeah, I'm an, I'm an orphan who just has a small gospel and a small Jesus, one who never went through real sufferings, none who is not really the Son of God, and that my sins are not all that real. It's all kind of painted up there. What's real is what's coming at me in the way of pressures. This is where we all live, isn't it? And so the call for the day is for Jack to repent. Repent. 
of a little faith, of hooking it into everything else but Christ. I realize the example I'm going to give you is a little depressing, but that's all right. Cheer up. <laughs> you know what I'm going to say. Cheer up. <laughs> all right, we won't finish that. This is taken from the diary and prayer journal of Samuel Johnson, a literary giant of the 18th century, a truly great man who uh, was a professing Christian. He even wrote sermons. He gives us a record through the years of his efforts to get up in the morning and pray, and here they are. 1738, he wrote, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. 1757, 19 years later, Almighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by a diligent application of the days yet remaining. Two years later, 1759, enable me to shake off idleness and sloth. 1761, I have resolved till I'm, resol I'm afraid to resolve again. 1764, my indolence since my last reception of the sacrament has sunk into grosser sluggishness. My purpose is from this time to avoid idleness, to rise early. 1764, five months later, he resolves to rise early, not later than six if I can. 27 years later, in 1765, I purpose to rise at eight, because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, for I often lie till two. <laughs> 1769, I am not yet in a state to form many resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning at eight, and by degrees at six. 1775, when I look back upon resolutions of improvement and amendments which have year after year been made and broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. He resolves again to rise at eight. 1781, 43 years later, three years before his death, I will not despair. Help me, help me, oh my God. He resolves to rise at eight or sooner to avoid idleness. Now, I, I realize your prayer journal might be a bit better than that, but nonetheless, as we smile at him, we ask ourselves, well, what about me? Am I that powerless? Is my faith hooked? into Jesus Christ. Well, I just think that we often have our faith not hooked into Jesus Christ because we don't have a clear idea of what we'd like to look like. What would you want to be? Why would you get up in the morning anyway? Would you like to have the day changed? Would you like to be changed on the day? Now, here's what Wesley had to say about Whitfield. And Wesley and Whitfield had some pretty severe conflicts. 
But later in his life, he had met with Whitfield on that particular day, and he says this about the man's character. He breathes nothing but peace and love. Faith working powerfully by love in George Whitfield. Bigotry cannot stand before him. That's what Wesley wrote about his friend. Is that the kind of person I want to be? Is that the kind of person you want to be? He breathes, she breathes, nothing but peace and love. Could it become habitual for me and for you? Well, we've seen the example of Sam Johnson, Dr. Johnson, as he's often affectionately called. And Jeremy Jackson says the difference between the Whitfields and the Wesleys, Whitfield and the Wesleys and Samuel Johnson, is that they, one, set of people had a sonship faith, and Johnson had a kind of a servant faith. Here's what he says. I think it is partly the distinction Wesley had seen in his own life between being a servant of God and knowing himself to be a son. This spells spiritual confidence in the Father who gives bread when we ask for it and not a stone. It spells the full realization that Jesus died for me and therefore also lives for me. He was raised for me. So here is something being aimed at, something being cultivated, and it involves a movement of the Spirit from the orphan attitudes and trusts to the faith of sons. And the faith of sons is connected with the existence and power and reality and work of the Son of God. The natural Son, the one equal with the Father, is the one who brings us to sonship and daughtership and makes us to be adopted and friends of God. And so the whole heart of the matter is, do I, as a friend of God, want to arise in the morning to meet with my friend? You see, Johnson was weighed down by conflicts. His basic conflict, just as he would express it, is that As a child, he had been disloyal to his father. As a husband, he had been at least emotionally disloyal to Tetty, his wife. He didn't commit adultery, I don't think, but nonetheless, as she got older and his sexual urges were just as strong as they were when he was younger, he just felt abandoned and they quarreled a lot. And he just carried around with him a lot of load of guilt. But his deepest sin was he rejected the atonement as being able to cleanse him. Someone came to him one day and said, Dr. Johnson, you're so often depressed. Haven't you considered the blood of Christ and its power? And he says, yes, I have. But you don't know how bad are my sins. Small Christ. Now, when that shame gets a hold of us, 
What we have to say is, yes, Dr. Johnson, your sins are probably a lot worse than you ever know. And your worst sin is you're despising the cross. That's what the heart of unbelief is. Because you see what this whole grace way of salvation is saying is you've got to be totally vulnerable to have it. And you've got to be increasingly vulnerable to enjoy it. We like to read books that give us a kind of a geometrical schema of grace. But we don't like the exposure of grace. Because grace says from first to last, nothing from you and all from heaven. And believe it or not, at the root of it is, it's hard for us to give love, but it's harder for us to receive it when it's clear we don't deserve it. Billy is the story of our lives. In the drama, you see, he always wants to earn the relationship with his dad. And therefore, that's why we're not powerful in prayer at any time, morning or otherwise. We've missed the purpose. And so the real question then we have to ask ourselves I really the one that John Piper asking. Do we really enjoy God? Do we enjoy grace? And do we somehow learn even to enjoy the warfare? Because whether you like it or not, you are involved in a war. If you were around when the Gulf War took place and you had signed up, to go to college, the recruiter said that this will give you uh, college benefits, it'll give you certain other medical benefits, etc. And suddenly there were these blaring headlines about uh, some strange guy named Hussein, and you didn't know anything about Hussein, and you were taken on an airplane, and you got off the airplane and given a uniform, desert camouflage, and you heard firing and guns in the distance, and you said, well, I, I was really here to go to college. Where's the college? And uh, they said, well, it's right in front of you. And your first lesson is to duck. <laughs> well, if you're a civilian in a war zone, there's no greater discomfort than that. You've missed the purpose of the whole business. And what you're out there, you may be an orphan, you may be a kind of a survivor, and you, you're out there to defend your ego and to get your brownie points and all the rest, but you don't really have any good reason for getting into the battle. You're not a fighter. And you can't be a Christian without being a Christian soldier. And so Jeremy Jackson says, the heart of it is knowing your father will give you bread. Dante Stone. He really loves you. And he has a powerful love. And it's unqualified, it's unconditional. In other words, the whole point of all we're saying in sonship is the favor of God is over you. 
and it's unrepealable. The favor of God is over you. Look at the three things that stand out in Galatians. You have justification by faith, and that immediately is connected to adoption to sonship. Both are legal. God legally forgives us out of love. He legally adopts us out of love. It's permanent forever. We're under his favor. And then he gives us a spirit of favor, the spirit of sonship. The height, the delight. The legal foundation, legal right, personal delight. It's all favor. And that's why you're getting up in the morning. Does that make sense? Now, if that's true, then how might you do it? And I think you really have to learn from other people. Did you ever uh, preach on a text? Some of you are pastors and later have the feeling that when you heard somebody else preach on it, you didn't even understand it? <laughs> well, I have. <laughs> Did you ever see somebody live out of a text and suddenly have the feeling you didn't understand it? That's what we're talking about. A Christianity where the Word, the Bible, lives in us. It has feet, it has hands, it has a voice in us. Where our lives run, gospel, the blood, our blood is uh, gospeline or whatever. Isn't that wonderful? Can you imagine what love there is in the Father for you and me? I mean, I feel like a little pygmy standing in front of um, the Alps or the Himalayas and, and saying, Ugh, look, look, look. Hardly able to open my own eyes, but there they are. They beckon with great love. Well, the person I would suggest that has helped many people and confused many others, perhaps, is George Mueller. I think many people have been confused by George Mueller's great answers to prayer. You know the story all the orphans are sitting down, hundreds of them and there's no food and they all pray and they sit there and, and they're waiting. They've just about said the blessing and then the bakery truck breaks down in front of the uh, orphanage and they bring the bread inside because it's going to spoil. And uh, great answers to prayer, you know. And the other one where he's, he's uh, talking with the captain of the ship, it's come into the headwaters of the St. Lawrence River, into the mouth, rather. And as they move in to the river, uh, it's foggy. The captain stops the ship because he can't move in that fog. George Mueller is going to be late for his speaking engagement. And, well, I just... Um, would have said, uh, I'm going to be late. But George Mueller says, no, I'm not going to be late. 
he urges the captain to start up the engines, you know, and the captain says, no, why? So they said, well, let's go in and pray. And so they go in and pray, and when they come out, the fog is lifted. Now, most of us would feel, perhaps, that we'd come out and the fog would be heavier. (laughs) But but this kind of great answer to prayer is what fascinates people about George Mueller. He uh, supposedly never had any appeals for funds. I think that is somewhat misleading. But um, nonetheless, that isn't the greatness of George Mueller. The greatness of George Mueller is he knew how to get up in the morning and pray. And... He had only one secret to greatness, and that was he delighted in his father. And his whole motivation in getting up was to glorify his father by the extraordinary answers to prayer. But nonetheless, the aim of it was not the big deals. He says, really, what I'm after is getting just ordinary folks to to see their lives and all provisions as coming from the father. And I'm not trying to get anyone else necessarily to live the way I do. And so the whole point then was to get people to enjoy God. And there's a nice biography of him by Steer, delighted in God. And he just enjoys God. And everything about it, people get converted through his preaching, orphans get saved, great testimony provision. But the main thing about it was he was enjoying God and he was a good soldier. And God used him mightily. People became so confident God was with him that they gave him thousands and thousands of pounds. And he was instrumental in providing a great deal of support for the China Inland Mission. But now, having said that, he did say two things had to happen in his life before he could become effective in delighting in God and seeing, uh, really getting into the warfare. One... He said, I have to die, I had to die to what George Mueller thinks about George Mueller. You really can't live for God's glory or have fellowship with God if you are thinking about what you think about yourself. The day you can say, it doesn't really matter what I think doesn't even matter what happens to me. Wow. Only what matters is God's honor and the welfare of others, the salvation of the lost. The second thing he said, the day had to come that I had to die to what other people thought about me. Us approval sucks. day had to come when I had to die to what other people thought about me. In other words, putting away reputation. Living before God, not living before people. And what I would do if I were you, I would honestly ask some people to pray these two things for you. Some even before you leave this conference. That you would die to what you think about yourself and die to what others think about yourself. And as that begins to happen, your getting up in the morning will be less boring. 
Did you ever notice how boring it is in the morning? And you hear that faint rustling in the background? Do you know what that is? That's angels yawning over your prayers. They are boring. <laughs> you know? 10,000 angels lean down to listen. The same old stuff. <laughs> you know, good night. Can you imagine? Here is our prayer warrior again. Oh, there he goes. Oh. Those poor angels. And all the devils are there grinning. But they don't even bother to show up. I mean, they don't have to. I mean, why should they even fight with this guy? He, he lost a long time ago. Um, and then with that, why is he boring? Why, why is he bored? The answer is, he's boring. He's so self-centered. He's boring. Right? Amen? You're just boring. <laughs> Have we made your day? Isn't this a wonderful thought for the day? We're going to have an altar call here for the boring people. <laughs> How many people have I bored to death? <laughs> oh. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> the way you're going to stop it. You need people to pray. That you'll get with the program. That you'll hear the gunfire. That when you hear the rattle of the machine guns, and you hear the small arms fire, and they're about 30 feet away, it gets your attention. When that heavy rifle booms and you know he's shooting at you, life is very alert. It's so alert, it's almost incredibly painful. The realization... That guy out there is planning my death. And I better plan his. And the guy who wants to get you is the devil. And you're in a fight for your own soul, for the souls of your people, for the souls of the lost. Die to what people think die to what people think. How do you do it? Well, you need to get two principles clearly in mind about what it is happening when you meet. One, you are asking God to meet with you. Or better, you are realizing that he's ready to meet with you already and you're asking that your eyes would be opened that he's there. So it's a meeting and a revealing. And the basis of that meeting and revealing is essentially Scripture and the promises, what God's going to do. They were going to be praying that the gospel of love is going to run rapidly in the earth. And we're going to ask people to justify themselves, explain themselves if the gospel isn't a power in their lives. 
I have seen a number of lawless people converted by the gospel dramatically. And I think I have seen a number of people who were would have called themselves something like truly reformed converted quite a few of them who'd simply used to quote one of them the Bible to beat people over the head with it end of quote (coughs) who had talked about the law but had no idea what it was to walk the law And in the morning, in this resurrection morning of a new age, we meet with a Father who can give you power to inquire into the lives of people where they are with the living God and to do it with joy. In a real sense, to evangelize yourself. What is it doing to me? When I meet with my Father in the morning, it's a meeting, but it's a revealing. Those two things go together. And I ought to pray, how long? Well, till I'm in fellowship with the Father. Till I'm loving Him, delighting in Him, but above all, realizing His love and delight in me, and then willing to obey Him throughout the day. Well, how would you prepare yourself for this? Well, I've already said one way is to get people to pray for you. That your eyes would be open to the glory of the gospel. It is the message alone which can change hearts. And as you feed on it yourself, you begin to realize more and more these great grand words, the favor of God is upon me and upon the church. And if people are not walking under the favor of God, then let them explain it. What happened to all your joy, Paul says? I want an explanation. I have asked people, did you ever do a single thing because you love Jesus? A single thing. Did you ever do a single thing? Did you ever stop doing a single thing because you love Jesus? I used to have these evangelism classes around the country. I think I had some converts <laughs> from out of the classes by teaching that question you should ask. So one man just jumped up and ran to the back of the, the church when I posed that. And he disappeared and called the pastor and me and we went over to his home after the service and here he was standing in the middle of the room with his wife, arms around each other. They were bawling. And we said, well, what happened? And she said, they said, well, I think I just got converted. And his wife said, he sure is different. <laughs> and he, he, he says, I'm a marriage counselor. And I have never loved my wife. I've never loved anyone. But I've not loved Jesus. And he says, this is what it is. Well, you see, you establish the norm, God's norm, the New Testament norm of life and faith for the church, and then you let people explain why it's not they don't have it. Too many pastors are kind of running a defensive ministry which they're trying to protect themselves when there's a lion here in the cage, lift up the door. And let the lion run. 
You ever see a lion close up run? It's impressive. Well, the gospel runs like that. It's the lion of God. Well, faith preparation, then, is to feed yourself on the gospel so that when you get there ready to pray, you've done some thinking about it. You prepare the night before or the day before, whatever. And you begin to think of getting ready to pray all the time. And what it means practically, then, in in this respect to faith practice, how do you do it? Well, simply this. As you look at yourself and what you want to do in the morning, One of the things you want to do is to see your own attitudes changed. You want to move from being an orphan to a son or daughter, right? So you're going to ask the Holy Spirit to give you, quicken the spirit of sonship in you, to get you hold of the promises. If you're a big sinner, get some big promises. Most of you need big promises. (laughs) I do. Lord, oh, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Wow! When David sinned, he took that very word and made it a prayer promise and he asked a preposterous thing here he'd been guilty of adultery and lying and murder and here he prays this man the sinner cleanse me with hyssop water sprinkled with blood representing Christ's work cleanse me with hyssop and wash me and I will be whiter than snow Preposterous prayer. If you're separated from the omnipotent salvation of the Son of God, but when you see that one who brings the righteousness and blood, the crucified one, is the mighty one. Oh, what hope there is for us. What reason do we have to live then in depression and sorrow and despair? Again and again we can say to my soul, Why are you cast down, O my soul, within me? I shall yet hope in my God. And why? Because we have a mighty gospel. And my prayers, even as feeble as they are, when they are armed on each wing, as Abraham Kuyper says, with a wing of faith and a wing of love, they go straight to the throne of God. Faith working powerfully by love. And then... I would simply do this. Some of you love the law, at least verbally. But how about learning really to walk the law? What are you going to do during the day? Well, Jesus said, the summary of the law is this. This is the law and the prophets. Matthew 7, 12. Just put it in one line. Whatever you would that others do to you, do so to them. The golden rule. You got it all right there. And so what you're asking, that you're going to love people in such a way, you're going to put yourself in their position through the day. So if you're going to go into a situation where there's a lot of fear... You pray for God to remove your fears and change you by the power of the Spirit, by the bread of the Lamb, the bread that the Lamb gives. And then, 
As you go into that situation, you pray for an eye of love. You are under the favor of the Father, and you want to put that person, under, see that person, if it's a Christian, under the favor too. And if it's an enemy, you still want to bless him. You're really asking for miracles throughout the day. You're asking for situations to be changed. You're asking for courage to engage in conflict. Because you must engage in conflict. You can't flee from them. But sometimes you need to be just quiet and listen and ask questions. Other times you need to admonish or even confront. But whatever is the occasion, you need to be led of the Spirit. And your concern ought always to be that someday we will all appear before the throne of the Almighty and give account. And therefore, those who are in front of me are precious souls, and this ought to so move me. When I think of Jesus taking my place, and I look out here at these lost people, he's made a great exchange. I need to make a small exchange in which I can think myself into the position of this lost person and weep for them and be willing to tell them that hell is a reality. It's not a joke. And essentially, when, when people come to you with their problems, the heart of ministry is to live in the presence of the Almighty, to enjoy Him, to enjoy the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then when, as a Christian, you pray with anyone else, they come with all their problems, right? All their demands, do this for me, do that. You do something for them they never expected. Because you have walked with God, and instead of their pulling you into all of their nervousness and fear, you, by faith, repent of your nervousness and fear, and you stand as you pray in the presence of the Almighty. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray. People should be getting converted through your prayers. And perhaps some of them might even leave the church if you begin to pray with brokenness, love, and authority. We call that what? A Scotch revival in which the quality of the church life is improved by some members removing themselves from it. And revival almost always involves that. And the heart then, if you're getting up in the morning, may be tested right here. Are you willing to have people turn away from you? You cannot pray a bold, daring prayer if you're not willing to take the cost of what might happen. What you really were praying in the morning is, Father, Lord, I'm, I'm going to really meet with you now. I want you to bless me in my day. And I want you to give me the Spirit. I want you to turn people to me and make them real friendly and nice. What kind of unreal world do you live in? That's fairyland. I mean, there's no world like that out there. What, what have you been smoking? I mean, that, that's crazy stuff. I mean, I think some... 
theologically trained people strike me as they have their own version of pot. And they just live in such a strange dream world. And don't be that way. You're a soldier. You're struggling for eternal souls. Life, death. Be bold. Be fearless. Including confessing your sins. And the boldest thing of all, believing they really are forgiven all the way. Amen. Let's close. Living God, our prayer life is shabby. In some cases, it may be almost non existent. But those here who may be the most effective in prayer would admit that if there's going to be a revival, we need a radical change. And we're helpless to change ourselves. Almost everything we have said runs counter to the fact that we're more like Sam Johnson than we know. We're ashamed to admit it, but that's true. And we ask you to forgive us and cleanse us, to open our eyes to see this great salvation and the tenderness and love and the favor of God over us, and then to be so armored in that gracious security that more and more we lose our fear of people, what they think, and our love of our own good opinion. Merciful God, merciful God, hear my cry, hear our cry. Teach us to pray. We're, we're such a mess, Lord. We're such messes. I'm speaking for myself, but for all of us. Lord, show us how to pray. Give us a heart for the gospel. Turn us from orphans to son and daughter soldiers. Show us how to fight. And then the heart of our prayer must be, cause your word to run rapidly among us. Cause it to spread, to triumph and to glorify you. And we pray that by the time this conference meets next fall that each one of us will have led several people out of darkness into the light that there would be fruit of the gospel that people would be converted that the lost would not perish give us a heart that's broken for a lost world break our selfishness fill us with the spirit Come, Holy Spirit, now. Visit us. You're welcome. You're welcome into our lives. Touch us. Change us. Burn us. Wash us. Make us whiter than snow. Through the gospel. Build us. Mend us. Strengthen us. Empower us. Send us. Oh, thank you, Father. We believe that we have received it. Amen. Amen.